Oh, gang, we got Hype Drop episode 38. Get in this. Come on. That's that pre-programmed fade away. I gave you guys about a minute of that delightful track. That was J.H. Fly with Learjets and Coops. Or Learjets, comma, Coops. Obviously that lo-fi vibe for our guest today, John Hedgehall. The man, the myth, the Edinburgh legend. He's a... He's just a super gangster. Um... I'm, I'm a little bit tired right now, guys. It's super late. I'm going to keep this short. We just did a podcast at the end of the day, which is... he's a, He was even more of a champ. He just did a full day of travel into the podcast, which is insane. And then um, I just went and dropped him off. I'm about to crash myself. But just want to preface this episode by letting you guys know a couple of things. One, we are now on Google Play. So if your friends can't use Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud, we got that Google Play now. So if they want to get on the Google Play game... Let them know. High drop. We in that bitch. And then also we're getting Spotify is the next goal. That's the next platform we're going for. Um, That's going to take a little more effort and some time, but we'll get there. So thank you guys for all love and support. Thanks for joining us again. Um, I can't say enough about this episode. It's going to be hype. It's a great, I mean, in my opinion, it was a really awesome episode. It was super dope. I hope you guys are going to enjoy it. Um, John is just a, a longtime practitioner, literally been training half his life. Um, since he was 15 and <clears throat> he's just been an OG in the game for so long. He's got a very good worldly history and understanding of it. His, uh, education and background and, in and what he's interested in is just in a unique insight and unique perspective that he brings just, just to, to, you know, my living room and the conversations I've had, but to anywhere, anywhere I've interacted with him, I, um, I really appreciate his insight and, um, the way he can articulate and, and think out an argument and bring it to you guys. He's an amazing educator. Um, he's an amazing philosopher and uh, an amazing friend, even though he's kind of a new friend for me. So um, I'm really excited to, to get to know him more and I hope you guys are excited to get to know him throughout this podcast. Thank you again so much for listening. I think that's pretty much it for housekeeping notes and pumping up um, this episode for you guys. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about so much to do with parkour and philosophy and uh just the state of lots of different things i mean i honestly can't remember my brain is sapped i had to i had to redline my brain for like the last 
hour and a half trying to keep up with the the awesome intellect that is Hedge, John Hall. Um, he he is really a, a really intelligent and fun human being to be around. I really was thought provoking conversation for me. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Much love to all the listeners out there. Much love to the Hive Drop fans. And uh, I mean, not even we're family, baby. We're the, it's a family. Fuck that fan shit. We're it's a hype drop family right now. And uh, appreciate you guys being part of my family. And uh, we're venturing through this episode together. So without further ado, thirty eight. I can't believe we made it this far. We're 38 episodes deep and we're about to go to Art of Retreat in about one and a half days from right now. So I hope to bring you guys some more dope episodes, some more dope guests like John, maybe do another one out there, maybe a collaboration with him and some of the other people that are going to be out there. So much love. Get at me guys in the DMS, in the comments. If you got my phone number, if you don't, it's on my somewhere online and I uh, just want to get more people involved. I'm a, I've been getting some good feedback here and there, but um, I love to hear from you guys always. So, all right, I'm going to go pass out. Much love, guys. Here we go. Yeah, okay. All right. Here we are. My living room. It's late. It's late. It's 9.45 p.m. my time. It's 5.45 p.m. a.m. your time. I honestly don't even know at this point. You're, you're so, a bold man going in on this podcast well, basically on no sleep after like a... What, yeah, 11-hour so, journey? Uh, I got up at... I got up, I got up about 24 hours ago after not having had a very good night's sleep in uh, a cramped bed in London uh, squeezed between rail tracks and a loud road uh, and then got on an airplane, uh, which was nine hours, got here, drove drove around a little bit, went training in a lovely Apex gym, Shout out Lou as well. Uh, pushed Amos over a lot. Thoroughly pushed him over on a yeah, literally just in very in a number of dimensions. Him over, <laughs> and he just kept going again, again, harder, harder. <laughs> he does that. I think that's his favorite phrase. He he do well in a BDSM dungeon. No comment. <laughs> We're gonna get him on the podcast one day. He'll have a, he'll have a time to to address that comment maybe himself. Um, but thank you for joining me no and, and being so bold. Uh, I'm stoked to have you here. This is sick. We met last year at last year's Art of Retreat. And then, of course, we're days away now from going this year. Yeah. Um, where we bonded over our shared love of very gay D&D characters. Yeah, I forget my character's name. <sighs> Something with dick in it, though. I'm, I'm certain of it. Yeah, um, I <laughs> it's too long ago. Uh, your character hit on all the other characters and then tried to steal things from them and then died. I, I also that tried much. to murder everybody. Don't forget that. Yeah. And but after I died, I was resurrected. You were. And I murdered two or three people and then died again. That sounds about right. That's my first game of D&D, and I, I do appreciate you being my dungeon master on that game. Is that what they're called? The yeah, yeah, that's you're the right. master. And, uh, Sounds like a thing Amos would have. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a little way too much to this story already, and it's not. It's no longer a rumor. Let it be known that Amos is whipped repeatedly, and what they do on camera for EDU or whatever, the pushing for falls, that's all just like to kind of shoot the, the, the shoot stuff. the yeah yeah. That's the vanilla stuff, but deep down there's a real dungeon underneath Apex Louisville, maybe. Secret. Anyhow, um, no comment. Yeah, we're getting wild already. But the 
that was my first game. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of fun. I, you know, I've actually never been against Dungeons and Dragons, but everyone always tells me it takes so long. That's why I it went does balls. take a long time. That's why I went balls to the wall, and I just tried to slay everybody instantly and cast spells, just mix it up. I felt like people were a little too timid. You yeah, know, with their characters, and I was like, "Come on, gang!" I think for me, I I I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. I do a lot of storytelling, and it kind of it's ended up being a part of the coaching persona that I have that narrative becomes really important to me, and the way we teach, I think for me, narrative is really important. So I I actually consciously try and be do more Dungeons and Dragons with the intent to get better at writing and talking and making narratives Mm. and that really helps me as a coach figure out how people think and learn and make things up and it's 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 an interesting crossover it's one that people don't initially get but when you get into both communities you realize that actually and um andy keller is giving a talk on this subject, I was going to say, I think like I year. see in the retreat, there's something that has yeah, very much so to do really with to see narrative that. and like how that applies to learning. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, so yeah, you're of course, I, I mean, actually, of course, I, I need to be educated myself on some of these things. I know that you are at least the acting founder of way, in ways of Access Parkour or one of the head co- owners, coaches, like what, explain to me. Exactly so what what it, Access Parkour is, your involvement, and what else you're about. So I'm one of three too, founders of, of Access Parkour, <laughs> which is a parkour coaching company based in Scotland, mm. uh, and I'm the managing director, uh, so I run it. Um, the other two founders, one right now is a full-time lawyer, and the other one is also full-time with the company. Um, he's the workshops manager, so he does a lot of the work as well, but I run it. Um, okay. the, the main goals and visions of it are built into the name. So it's accessible parkour coaching and a lot of the vision is very much mine. Right on. Man. And I do appreciate like the unique vision that you do bring. You know, I remember being <clears throat> just fascinated with your take on a lot of these subjects, anything basically related to, to parkour or education or otherwise. God, that, this thing is annoying me. Sorry, it's going in and out. But last year and then. Again, this year we've already gotten into some interesting I have conversations about. Yeah, no, I appreciate that though because you 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 have opinions, but you're not afraid to share them, and they're well thought out. They seem to be like. I hope so. Like I don't. I worry sometimes that I I shoot my mouth off, but I I'm always trying to make sure that I shoot my mouth off about things that I've thought through. That's important. I don't do the that <laughs> second wow. part as much, but uh, I need. I need people like you, at least on the podcast, to to show me how it's done. So, <clears throat> speaking of, like, what is, um, you know, just going off the name Access Parkour, like, one of those founding principles, like you said, making it accessible, what is it that you think that you guys do best that makes parkour accessible? So, the, the first thing that we really became interested in was teaching beginners. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of went, okay, so what uh, what kind of people come to parkour class? In general, they're young and fit. Uh, and that's because parkour appeals to young, fit people. Um, why? What about... Excuse me? These Waterloo's are... <laughs> they got a lot of carbonation in them. Watch out for that. They've plagued the podcast for the last, like, five episodes. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Listeners will know. Avid listeners. Keep going. <clears throat> so uh, how to teach beginners. Uh, what kind of people come to parkour class? Young, fit people. So why? What is it about parkour that means that other people don't come to parkour? And so we began sort of trying to figure out why. The first thing we did was we removed all of the dynamic elements from a parkour class. And what was left was uh, mobility, strengthening, stability. Uh, it, what was left was squats, hanging, balance, uh, lots and lots of um, crawling, mm. an awful lot of movements which were very, very healthy. Mm. And we sort of bundled that together. We put a whole lot more mobility in than most Parker athletes do. And we called it the back in the game class. And really we were focusing on trying to take something that was parkour, but without the power element that would appeal to a wider range. And it did. That class still runs. Uh, it runs three nights a week now because it's so popular and uh, people are coming along. They really enjoy it. A lot of people will come to it and then either... They'll either go to parkour classes, discover that, okay, I should probably do the conditioning as well and do both, yeah. or they'll come to conditioning and then eventually we'll sort of get them into the introductory parkour classes. Mm -hmm. So the way we sort of see that is if you think about the range of people who are capable of taking a parkour class right now, even a beginner's parkour class, there's a whole host of people out there who just can't. And so the first thing we did was we figured, okay, how can we get these people involved? Yes. So that's where we went with it first and we sort of from there built a much better understanding of inclusive practice, how to engage smaller communities. Um, we got really interested in the question of why there aren't more women in parkour. Yeah, um, which was a huge theme last year, which, I feel like AOR. A it was and uh, I got a lot of really cool insight there. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what the most fascinating thing I think that came out of AOR last year was that um, when you ask men what the most important part about getting more women to parkour is, they say strong female leadership. And when you ask most women, they say female only spaces. Interesting, yeah. And um, that's sort of a disconnect. So the leaders in the community are busy trying to create more strong female leadership. And the women in the communities are saying, just give us space and we'll do the rest. And so at the end of the day, some the way I kind of put it last year and the way I sort of put it to this day is sometimes your instincts are wrong. And yep. that was a really good case where it was clear the instincts of the majority of leaders in the parkour community was wrong mm -hmm. because what we were being told we wanted was different. And so respect it and do it. And in general, when you come across a smaller community of people with different needs from yours, you need to respect their opinion, not your own. And that's very difficult for people with big egos to do. And the sort of people who create parkour coaching companies or the people, entrepreneurs in general, have big egos. So yeah, you'd have to be to to sometimes to be industrious like that to yeah. to want to start an enterprise. <clears throat> Big ego or not, it takes like a certain type of personality potentially, or at least certain personality types gravitate towards it that have yeah. the the same potential There's pitfalls and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And right now, uh, the focus is on mainstream education. Yep. So parkour is amazing. Well, real quick, before we keep going on, I just wanted to be, well, yeah, actually, I'm curious, like, why, um, because, <clears throat> and again, I feel like I'm going to play a lot of devil's, devil's advocate potentially on some of this stuff, but, like, why is it important to get, you know, more minority groups involved? Why is it important to make it's a really good question accessible? Because uh, it's not. Mm. If you're happy with your community, don't change it. 
No, if someone tells you you need to become more inclusive, mm. tell them where to shove it. Um, <laughs> you don't. In fact, if you feel like someone is forcing you to change your community, then they're in the wrong. Mm. Because inclusivity is a tool that you use. It doesn't need to be the way you live your life. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to create a community full of incredibly high-level athletes, you don't want to use inclusive practice because you don't want to encourage beginners along to your classes. You want to find the best of the best. Mm. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that idea. But personally... I would like more women in the parkour community because sometimes jams feel like sausage fests. A little bit. <laughs> uh, I would like uh, to attract more minority groups into parkour because they give different opinions, they give different ideas, and they mm -hmm. make us. Well, ultimately, I you feel become like stronger. Better. Often, right? Yeah. When you give like a, there's like a, there's definitely you can extrapolate, of course, to a whole nation. You know, if 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 you don't give safe spaces, not just for women doing parkour, but for maybe. Uh, Immigrant populations, immigrant populations uh, homosexuals in certain like yeah. in like Ru Russia or in like obviously in like whatever uh, probably here uh, historical like parts of Germany. It's like these they're the best minds often live in these minority communities, and or you know the most creative thinking often is forced out of uh, you know it can be in pressure circumstances, and if you don't make spaces for these people to feel alive and be able to be creative and use their talents. You're, you're only weakening your own community, potentially. Yeah. Uh, echo chambers <clears throat> aren't good if you want to broaden your horizons. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the answer is simply, if you want to be more inclusive, learn the tools and use them. Mm -hmm. But don't feel forced to use the tools because if you end up creating a community you don't want to be a part of, that's where problems lie. Ah. But if you want a community that's more diverse, great. We have tons of tools for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and make that decision for yourselves. Like, that's not something that anyone should be able to tell you. Uh, if you want to move into something like mainstream education like we do, yeah, you don't get a choice. But there's nothing to stop someone opening a gym and only wanting 100 members. I mean, it's it happens all the time in, um, in the world <laughs> of uh, gyms. Like, mm -hmm. you'll find there will be a CrossFit gym in town which will have 100 members and each one will be dedicated to the way they do things there. And they don't need any more members. It's full. Uh, that can happen and there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that yeah but for us we want to move into mainstream education so these tools are fundamental to our practice yes and that's where it became really interesting for me and where I've spent a lot of time over the last year because inclusive practice is very important mm -hmm. when you're dealing with many different people uh, because you have to try and meet the individual individual needs of all these different kinds of learners but it goes beyond that. You need to start thinking about introducing more than just parkour because you're thinking about their entire physical education. Mm. You're thinking about where they're at in their education. You're thinking about what skills they need to learn. You stop thinking, I need to teach them a Kong vault. And you start thinking, okay, do they know their lefts and their rights? Can they sequence uh -huh. yet? Uh, how are their communication skills? How are their teamwork skills? Yeah. Um, do they know how to absorb impact through their body becomes the question, not can yeah. they land properly? Yeah. And so when you start asking different questions, a lot of it remains the same, but a lot of it changes. And so we kind of, I spent a lot of the time figuring out how I wanted to teach 
physical education through parkour. And that's really what I'm working on right now and thinking about right now and talking about right now. Badass. And then is there um, anything that, <clears throat> you know, we were, we were making some comparisons like with American culture and stuff like how, how, how does it uh, differ you think, or how would you do something like if you were to come in and make, and change something about the way. I mean, I guess you don't have necessarily a whole like a lot of exposure to like our curriculum, the way we teach classes and stuff. No, maybe not. I our was stuff. spying a little bit today. Spy, espionage. I don't like it. I let you in, let you into my home. Yeah, and uh, you betrayed me. <laughs> you only exist out here because of me. All right, I drove you to that gym. I'm just kidding, but I guess maybe maybe not our programs or even American programs in general, but like, what is it, what is it looking like right now? What is it looking like for you to, to take a program or to build your program into something that's ready for it, for mainstream education? I think the main critique <clears throat> I would make is that a lot of the programs I've seen so far are, have been a little bit lazy. And that's not, that's not to say lazy in that they haven't put the effort in. It's more to say that they've done what they do, which is they've taught parkour. Mm-hmm. And so it works. It's different. It's exciting. You can go in and you can teach the regular thing you teach in the gym to a bunch of children in a, in a school. Most of them will join in. Most of them will love it. It's a brand new activity. It will be enjoyed immensely. Yeah. I think the question remains as to whether or not it's in their long-term best interests mm-hmm. because it just becomes another sport. So they'll do they'll do six weeks of baseball, then they'll do six weeks of parkour, and then they'll do six weeks of basketball, mm-hmm. and then six weeks of, I don't know, badminton. <laughs> hey, um, the shuttlecocks, man. Yeah. Great sport. Um, but the point is that it just becomes another sport, whereas I think that there, that's a bit, it's a bit too unambitious for me because I think it should be physical education. So what, I think can you that, explain the difference there? So uh, part of physical education is teaching children the rules of the various sports in our society. Okay. And it's a very important part of it, physical education. So children need to learn how to play baseball in school so that if they want to go to their local little league, they have some basic understanding of what they're meant to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they should be exposed to lots of sports. So they find ones that interest them, so they might be able to take them further. But that's one part of their physical education. They need to learn um, all sorts of things. Uh, a really good example is, um, I'm going to seem like a bit of a hypocrite for saying this one, is competition. All right. Children need to learn how to deal emotionally with uh, the stress of winning and the stress of losing, with the stress of competing with the stress of fair environments and the stress of unfair environments. Yeah. Uh, and all of those different things can and cause a been... whole bunch of different emotional responses in children. And probably the best way to get the children to be exposed to those things and to show them how to properly deal emotionally with those things is through physical environments and physical education. Mm-hmm. So generally, how a PE teacher will think of this is they will use a game of basketball to teach the children about winning and losing. Mm-hmm. So they'll teach the rules of the sports in society and they'll use those sports to teach these deeper lessons. Yeah. 
And that works really well and is the idea. But one of the things that's happening in society right now is we're seeing um, a much more sedentary population. Children are often coming to school without some basic fundamental concepts. They're often uh, very overweight. I was going to say. They're often glued to their phones. <laughs> uh, they often don't have the ability to move in the same way that a children a generation might have. Um, then, yeah, it's an opportunity thing, you think, as yeah. well. Just, uh, I mean, or is it just... There's loads of reasons why. It, it's an opportunity cost because of just the culture. It's not accept, like, again, it's it's out of thought, out of mind. Or it's, uh, yeah. One of the more interesting reasons I think that it's happening... One of the more interesting reasons I think that it's happening is because we are sportifying and commodifying our <clears> lives <throat> and we're getting rid of boredom. Ah, oh, okay. And so when I was young, which wasn't that long ago. You uh, look young. You look, you're crushing it, man. As awesome. far as I know, you're five years younger than me. I have no idea how young you are, actually. <laughs> no clue. Uh, let's keep it that uh, way, because then I'm going to have to reveal my age. There we go. Let's, let's just uh, stay silent on yeah, that one. Let's okay. just say we're both old enough. All right? <laughs> um, hey, this is a half, hey, half comedy podcast, all right? Hey, ladies. Hey, what up, hey. Um, Yeah, all anyway. those. We need those high drop listeners. We need the inclusivity on the high drop podcast. I'm going to have to apply principles here. Okay. But keep going. When I was young, I played a bit of uh, soccer. I played a bit of this and that. But the majority of my <laughs> physical activity was playing. Playing in the street, playing with my friends, cycling mm -hmm. on bikes, exploring forests, swinging on swings in the local play park. Mostly it was undirected play. It was spontaneous. There were no rules or fixed systems. Yeah. So generally I was free to explore and try and meet the needs that I had that I was trying to get through play. It's generally what children are doing. They're trying to meet their needs in some way or the other. Mm -hmm. Those environments are disappearing from our culture. Big time. Yeah, I mean. And they're being replaced by um, much more controlled environments. So they won't, we won't go send the kids down to the park and they'll kick a football around. Instead, we'll send them and they'll play soccer for 90 minutes and then we'll pick them up again and they'll have learned something in that time. And that's a very different environment. And too much it, structure, yeah, you're thinking. It's not so much that it's too much structure, it's that there's no longer unstructured time. Mm. So parkour becomes very interesting in that manner because it's similar to play. Mm -hmm. It's not play but it's similar to play. And what I think we can do with it is help children learn to play because they don't necessarily know how to anymore because they've grown up in sedentary, structured environments. Mm. And that's kind of where my thinking is right now. Uh, and so at Art Retreat, I'm mostly talking about a, different, a number of different philosophies about why we educate and how we educate and when to educate and sort of bringing those ideas of, okay, so what are we trying to achieve through education? Okay, now that we know what we're trying to achieve, um, how do you get there? 
how does that look like checking back with the basic principles and saying okay are we doing this for the right reasons why are we doing like questioning everything questioning like why are we playing sports in the first place why are we why is it important that little timmy goes to little league why is it important that sarah goes to five dance classes a week why is it mm-hmm. important that you like why yeah and if we have a good answer great but we should be asking those questions yeah i'd agree um what do you think is the difference uh, just to revisit real quick between parkour and play and you do you, you drew that distinction i'm just curious like what you think um, separates uh, the two. Parkour as coached is a directed activity. And so at best, it can become directed play. Uh, directed, as coached. As coached. So children coming into... But if they're not coached. That's, right. that's, yeah. that's a really interesting question. Um, parkour as taught in a classroom is directed, even if it's, Mm -hmm. hey guys, I want you to go into this space and find a jump that's appropriate for you and break it. Mm -hmm. Even that's directed play. Even if you give children all of that freedom, and we should be giving them as much freedom as we can, it's still directed play. It's not Mm -hmm. undirected. Undirected play is spontaneous. The rules are fluid Mm -hmm. uh, and it's child-led. So this means that if we're telling them what to do, it's not play. Well, do you think then that there's like this subsect of, of parkour practitioners that are still approaching it from this play mindset? Yes. And like, you know, what, what's coming to mind for me is actually often a lot of the the people that, you know, you might consider the elites or like people that become famous on Instagram right now for, and I'm sure lots of other ones that I wouldn't know about because they're not on Instagram, but you know, my approach feels more, it's like the pro, the, the play approach and like the, the, the people that I know that have gotten notoriety within the sport seem to take that mindset more than they take a directed mindset. Which comes to this really interesting question about, um, how does, like, how does a parkour jam differ from play? And I think that's a really good question. I think it's, it's definitely much closer Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are obviously, I mean, if we think about it, uh, in a parkour jam, the rules are fluid. We're making them up as we go along. Mm. In fact, we're constantly changing them to the different challenges. We set a challenge. We change the rules on the challenge. Um, it's spontaneous. We'll do it. We won't do it. We'll stop. We'll start. We'll see a thing. We'll be interested. We'll have a goal. We'll try and meet it. And it's led by the person. So that, that, I mean, that would count as a play environment, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the interesting question. How many of the students who walk through the door of Apex are capable of attending a jam without any sort of help? Uh, are you asking me the question? Yeah. If I knew the answer, I would tell you, I guess. If I thought I, I actually don't feel like I, I uh, have the best assessment of that. I mean, I without think- any help, you mean they would just go to a jam and, and, and play and, and have a good time without yeah. assistance. I would say it's probably a majority of students for sure, but I, I really don't know. Like, really, I couldn't even ballpark the percentage for you. I think that, I think definitely with, with our gyms and with any parkour facility that I've visited or any that I've known or heard about, there seems to be <clears throat> some people that become, like you said, almost enslaved by the direction and mm-hmm. or entrapped by it in, in that they, they don't know what to do with themselves given too much freedom. And especially 
you know, at a jam setting or even worse. Like, you know, I've had people hit me up on Instagram before. They're like, Hey, do you know how I can get into like training? And I'm like, go out with friends and go train. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, or they're asking for like, for questions that seem obvious to me, um, you know, where they're, they're like, you know, some guy actually hit me. He's like, how do I get into urban exploring? You know, the other day. And I go, well, it's kind of self-explanatory. I feel like it's in the title. You go to urban areas, you explore. And I would recommend going with friends. And can I, they, they can almost I presume this? a, yeah, please do. Sorry. That, that thing might need some, some tightening if you want to. In fact, I can help you here. No, it's just that I'm twisting there towards you. There we go. There we like go. I've got a... Um, and not to hey. shit on that guy, I think like it's it's hard to know like what to do. But and he's and and uh, God bless anyone who's brave enough to ask the question and get some advice. Like at least they're doing something. But to assume that I have any expertise, God damn it, this thing is whatever. Uh, to have any expertise over this um, is actually the mistake. I I went out and I just tried things. So this is really cool. So this is called uh, an education theory: the novice expert split. Mm-hmm. Um, novices are so both novices and experts are beginners yeah so someone comes into your gym as a beginner uh, you're trying to assess if they're a novice a novice is someone with no experience of anything similar I'm just going to rotate that just there you go perfect with, so a novice is someone with no experience of anything similar so they've never tried anything like parkour yeah. they've nothing to really scaffold it to they're sort of the people who come to your class and they don't know the rules of how to behave in a physical environment or they don't know how to move their body or they can't copy what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And an expert is someone with something to scaffold this experience onto. They've been to some other sporting class. They've mm-hmm. got s- some martial arts background or dancing background or something which allows them to at least get what's going on if not to know what's going on yeah so they might have never seen a kong before but maybe they've done a jump through in yoga so like the physical muscles involved are Mm. familiar to them sure so this novice expert split it is actually very difficult for teachers yeah because teachers are experts um because they have so much experience doing what they do so they can't necessarily think like a novice. Uh, and it's actually really hard to deprogram yourself. Big time. Um, and on top of that, what makes it worse is that a lot of the people who are teachers now got into parkour when it was all jam led. And mm-hmm. in the absence of structured training environments, the people who continue parkour are going to be the experts. Yeah. So pretty much everyone you meet who started parkour has some background in something that allowed them to get the hang of it or get parkour really fast. Um, for some, like for me, it was athletics. I was a long jumper and a sprinter. Okay. So jumping and doing fast movements made perfect sense to me. Uh, I know a lot of guys who got into it from martial arts. Me too. I know some guys who got into it from circus. Yep. Uh, it pulled people from different places, but most of the people who are now high-level coaches started parkour as experts and never went through a novice stage. And which means it's, it's evident when they did go through that stage because they obviously make for better coaches, I feel like. And not just better coaches, but better experts, better better just people, like more complete like trainers, I'd say. 
It's potentially they, true. Like I'm not. not I'm not always, convinced. Not always. I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't agree with that statement. Yeah. Um. Although I can see how it, it makes sense, but I think that you like. I think that anyone who's been through a novice process in anything has the potential to understand the concept. That makes sense. So it doesn't like you don't have. Yeah, it didn't to have, have been, to be with parkour. Yeah. Um. And of course, we've all been through a novice process. If you go far enough back, we've all. Like we all had to learn to read and write. Speak for yourself, bro. You just I'm illiterate and I don't read. Or see that's a Innu- <laughs> and I can't speak. Huh? Innumerate. Innumerate? Yeah. Oh, nice word. Thank you. I'm gonna remember that one. Um Or you would if you weren't illiterate. If I wasn't literate, yeah. Uh yeah, no, and I, I I don't know what you know about me, but I don't necessarily I'm not known for my coaching abilities, so this would make sense that I don't understand all these things. Um I'm known less for that than for you know my maybe athletic challenges and things like, or who knows maybe hopefully this podcast one day but like you know <laughs> I just like I, uh, I I I've always in, enjoyed being able to to relay information and help someone get things and and learn but it's never necessarily felt like my forte or my 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 passion of choice to help people at least explicitly learn you know. I like to learn through experience. Like I learned just by having a conversation from you. And I think that's like the way I like to learn more than I like to, to sit in a classroom environment even, but you know, that's just a personal preference potentially. It's, it's always a bit sad for me realizing that people don't like, like people like, I don't know very many people who liked classroom environments. Yeah. Which feels sort of silly because <laughs> it's like, can't we do better? Yeah. Um, and the worst one is I rarely meet people who liked PE. And this always throws me because it feels like a no-brainer to me that PE would be the best subject that in school. That was my favorite class. I don't know. I, won't, um, I wasn't one of these guys. but I mean, you find a lot of people who hated PE. You find a lot of physically capable people who are high up in sport who didn't like PE. Really? And that always sort of like throws me because a lot of PE should be doing physical things and young children should like doing physical things and shouldn't like being tied to desks. So how were we failing to be good at PE? (laughs) You would know way more or way more about that subject than I do. I think like there's definitely been a collapse in in at least the local area for, you know, my mom was a teacher for um, most of my young and adolescent life. And um, she had told me that, you know, the the peak of education in Jefferson County where where I grew up was basically like right when I got out of the game, it just like crumbled behind me. Like (laughs) I had some of the better teachers and I grew up in a good era, era, luckily, where people actually gave a shit, it seemed like. And then, uh, you know, I don't know what it is. If it's like, if, you know, like Jordan Peterson, which we noticed his book on the, on the coffee table earlier, he likes to break these things down into like this dichotomy almost always between order and chaos, tyranny and, and, uh, I forget the other one. Damn it. I haven't read the book yet, but I know from his like video lecture series and things I've seen on YouTube that he might say, well, the, the, the tyranny, whatever it is that create created classroom environments and made them possible to begin with the fact that they, you know, like are failing right now, just goes to show that they are out of date. 
and they're just due. They're due for an update. They're they're wildly overdue potentially for an update. Probably paraphrasing Hegel. Yeah, uh, who knows? Um, you do maybe. So that's this idea that um, there's always an action and a reaction. History is just full of actions and reactions. So there's. Uh, one ruling class is overthrown by the next ruling class. So mm -hmm. there's a response and then there's a shift back. So generally you'll find that what will happen is there's an overcorrection every time. So all, I mean, I mean America, America's got a great example in its uh, political system. Oh, the Democrats screwed up. Oh, let's all vote Republican. Oh, we've gone too far Republican. Oh, we need to go. And then, oh, let's vote Democrat. And then sort of swinging backwards and forwards. Yes. Um, that's sort of how Hegel sees a lot of history. Yeah. And I think... Um, at least with Peterson's theory, it breaks down a little bit, maybe per, more specifically into this idea that <clears throat> the 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 people that set up the 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 ruling class, the the preceding ruling class, they uh, they set things up. The only way that these things can exist, the classroom doesn't exist without creating like some kind of rules, structure, things that like ultimately are rigid. But there, but because life isn't rigid, because life is 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 constantly changing, then against like the that same structure, it becomes just archaic. It becomes out of date just because of the evolution of of everything that's happening. You know, with with the culture and human species, or whatever. Yeah, I but can like, some, maybe sum this up for you. Um, so we created classrooms so that we could create workers like classrooms were designed yeah. in the 19th century to fulfill the need of that society and that yeah. society needed workers with facts in their heads who were able to do basic arithmetic arithmetic skills mm -hmm. so they could go and work in factories and create products because the 19th century was about making things and that lasted well into the 20th century and in the 20th century we got really really good at making things in the 21st century we don't make things as much anymore what's and our new paradigm do you feel like or do we not know? It's a good question. Um, a but, lot of people keep telling me that it's crypto, and I still <laughs> don't exactly know what that is. But uh, right now, it's um, it's entrepreneurial, it's invention, it's new ideas, it's new ways. Um, I think that uh, one of the next places we're going is probably something to do with biohacking mm. and making ourselves feel differently. I think we're all seeking experiences now because stuff doesn't actually do anything for you. Yeah. Um, what that's going to look like, I mean, like we're seeing a huge rise in people's interest in meditation. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing a like overhaul of the way we view um, psychoactive substances. We were talking about yeah, this earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not saying that these things are necessarily were thought of as bad and now they're good. We still think and should hopefully know that these things are very dangerous, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as bad. Just like with any technology. Yeah. It's always um, been double-edged sword. Yeah. And I think we, I think generally hope if, if I'm right and hopefully the way I'm definitely going is we're looking for better experiences. We're looking to understand why owning things doesn't fulfill us. Why, most people are sad mm. and why society doesn't seem to be getting better even though I just got a new iPhone 7. <laughs> well, <clears throat> consider this for, um, you know, just <laughs> conjecture here or I don't even know if I'm using that word right because 
it. I need help with my vocabulary. But what I'm thinking is instead of this uh, factory type, this drone approach to, to classroom environments and what the society needed, now what we need and what we need to maybe not need for society but to celebrate is like the – the nuance again, like I was talking about earlier, the nuance of each individual. It seems to be like maybe the next era. I don't know what you think about that. And, and like it, this instead of trying fantastic to because measure, this leads on to a really good point. Well, awesome. Like, yeah, instead of trying to measure, you know, everyone by the same yardstick, we're we're trying to make a yardstick for each person or something. Yeah. So you know? you're looking at creating. Um, that was the correct use of conjecture, by the way. Well yes. done. <laughs> um, turning into teacher mode, isn't it? Yeah, great? yeah, it's very good. I think that what you're saying has merit yeah. and is right in that that's what we're looking to do. The problem comes in the implementation because the implementation's a yeah. little bit messier than you might think. Oh. Because we and do, I think it's messy. We want children to be grow up to be critical and able to analyze things and to come to new conclusions and to be creative and to be problem solvers. Mm-hmm. These are all high-level skills. And if we try and teach children to be creative problem solvers who are self-actualized critical human beings, we get a bit confused because you can't teach those things. Mm. Or at least we don't really know how. What we do know is that if you teach something by rote Mm. and you change aspects of it. So if you want to teach addition... You teach one plus one is two, one plus two is three, one plus four is five. So you show them the pattern, mm-hmm. you explain the pattern to them, you make them do the pattern, and you, subtly, you repeatedly change it so the pattern never changes and they always understand it. And then you add in subtraction and you show them how to do it. Mm. And if you show them explicitly at every stage, they learn. Yeah. And as they get more familiar with the material, they get better understanding the nuance. But the nuance can't be understood without the basic understanding, which is really upsetting to most teachers because it means that you've got to teach them how to do something before you teach them why they need to do it. Yeah. And almost every single expert as defined by what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. will prefer the why. Because if you remember the why, you don't necessarily need to know the how. And I remember that being very frustrating vividly as a a young person, actually. Yeah. Like thinking, what the fuck is this for, though? You know, that's what feels meaningless in the classroom. Yeah, but uh, and that's that's bad classroom management. Yeah, I mean, Um, and and that was my good teachers, by the way. Shout out (laughs) Jeffco County Schools. <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're all listening. They're all listening. They're, they've been following me. you the they're whole time. Big fans. Big fans. Um, yeah. No, the thing is, um, a lot of that feels quite frustrating. Uh, but if done well, can be engaging. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I sort of always, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, pretty much all classes should start with a, sm- a short period of explicit instruction. And I say a short period of explicit instruction because I believe that it can take less than five minutes to do well, but it can completely change the rest of your class if done well. Mm. So uh, if I want them to do jumps, I start by teaching them how to land every time, even experts. I tell them the cues I want them to work on. I tell them what I want them to think about. 
It is a few minutes. It's effectively part of the warm-up and it changes the class. It changes because they know what they have to think about, so they're thinking about it. Mm. Um, and that period of really explicit rote learning placed at the start means that you don't have to do it the rest of the time and you can have fun and do all the cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's just that sort of, here's the bad news about wanting to create self uh, yeah. self-actualized, problem-solving, critical human Creative beings. Thinkers, yeah. A whole lot of the process involves all those things that we despise like rote learning. Yep. Yeah, it just takes, it's the wax on, wax off approach, you know, the karate kid, I guess, whatever. It's like doing a bunch of ridiculous little motions, not understanding the real need or plan for them and then actually needing them for the, this like jazz ability to to do martial arts or whatever who knows the wax know. on wax off approach is almost right it's yeah. like uh it's a very long period of explicit instruction yeah, like, that wax one, on. that's like that maybe that's not the best example in fact i have not seen a karate kid actually ever maybe i just know that <laughs> that one scene because it's so goddamn popular so if you were to show him how to wax on wax off and then make him wax... 45 cars? Yeah, or every single brass item in a museum. Mm -hmm. Then we're talking. Okay. Or if you were to show him how to... Uh, show him how to wax... Show a small group of kids how to uh, wax on, wax off, and then give them a whole variety of objects, some of which were easier to use and some of which were harder to use, and tell them that the challenge was to uh, polish one of these objects to get it as bright as possible. Yeah. Now you're talking about something that looks a lot more like education because you want to allow children to self-differentiate as well when you teach them. You want to allow everyone to self-differentiate when you teach them. Mm. Um, that's kind of where you want to go. So if uh, you create a classroom where the first thing they do is they learn something and the second thing they do is they get to apply it at their own level, then you're creating fun spaces. Mm. And then what my, uh, my my brain just thought of, I guess, is just what what then happens, like, or is this not the problem that we run into, is <clears throat> we figure out what we, what we want to teach them wrote, potentially, right? Yeah. We think, we, we think we've evaluated, like, what's the value, the question we want to answer, the, the, the skill we need to develop so that they can have um, whatever, I'm not sure the phrasing is used, but they can apply it at their own level. Once we think we figure that out, everything changes, and now there's a new thing. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden we're back to square one where we're like, these classrooms weren't working anymore. We don't need factory workers or we don't need, we won't need self-actualized creative thinking all of a sudden. Now we'll need God knows what, like we'll do biohacking and all of a sudden we need, uh, no one can even imagine it. We need people who can. Yeah. But I think we need to create the self-actualized effect of learners. To at least get there. <laughs> so that they can tell us what they need. Yeah. And that comes back to inclusive practice which mm. is to understand your gut feeling might be wrong. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I didn't th I wasn't saying let's give up because of that. I'm just saying No, no, no. no. I, I think that's like probably where we get, right? We can only do our best. Mm. Like if your theory is the the very wonderfully nihilist approach of even if I create the best thing in the world, 
that means that someone's going to create something better one day because of what I'll have given to them as inspiration because they'll have an inspiration I never had. Yeah, and yeah, I wasn't... That, that's not... That's sort of nihilist in some ways, but I, I, like, on the other hand, that's amazing. No, yeah, yeah, I wasn't saying it nihilistically. I, I, was, I really didn't mean to come across that way. I just think that that's, that's funny. Is like, that's just... That's the beauty of it. It's like, let's just have fun hopefully along the way then because, of course, we're going to get to a spot where we will need to update. It'll always need updating. We'll always... We can always go further. You know, one can only hope at least. Well, then what? What if we can't go further? Then we'll really have a big problem on our hands. <laughs> robots. Robots. Robots, baby. Robots. And crypto. Rip, crypto, man. What do you want to know? Robots. I might be one tiny iota like of a sliver ahead of you with crypto because I do own some crypto, so I had to educate myself moderately about it. So I might be able to answer a question or two. So the whole thing is that it's really secure, right? I have no idea if it's that secure, honestly. I think it's supposed to be more secure in some ways, probably less secure in others. And that, like, you can't change the record. Why can't I just give you a dollar? You can just give me a dollar. Okay. But if you don't, I mean, you're from Edinburgh. Uh You do have a dollar on you? Yeah. But how did you get that dollar? I exchanged it. Would you would would you like to not have to exchange it, or at least just exchange it for the click of a button and not have to carry things around? I can also do that. It just costs a bit more. It exactly costs a bit more. It costs a bit less when you don't have to have these centralized bank like running things. They just uh, divvy, they they spread out the responsibility of like this you know this huge bank company, and it's now shared amongst everybody, so that so it's a stock market. You know, uh, no, I don't think so. And I probably should shut up because I don't really understand it probably well enough to to speak intelligently on it. But as far as I can understand, it's just decentralization is kind of the main um, value that's being offered by cryptocurrency. Yeah, so, so de- decentralization uh, would mean that the price of it is controlled by how much individuals are willing to buy or sell, which is so I compared it to a stock market. Okay. In that you can have you will you will naturally then develop a boom and bust cycle with regards to its exchange rate. Um and then Yeah, and and they're they are working towards like again, like I don't understand these what these things I need I need better education. I need better I need to be liberated through education. But for me it's like uh, I know that they're working on things like proof of stake and things that like will alleviate or destroy like the, the those kinds of issues that, you know, these boom I mean, perhaps they just never go away because even the any currencies we can come up with are subject to wild fluctuations, right? And to a certain extent you want that. It's yeah. one of the one of the important parts about the economy is you want it to be in constant flux. Yeah, it's an important part of a healthy economy. So, yeah. you know, I think mainly it's just that the. Uh, <clears throat> I think ultimately what what the crypto is doing is the same thing that the internet is had had done is just it's trying to take power and and roadblocks and bottlenecks out of the system and give more access to to individuals. And uh, I think that's really like the whole the if, if the big value add that you can you can get from these these technologies is all what they try to do, and I think why people are excited about them is that they potentially offer more people the opportunity to do things with fewer barriers. Yeah, it has, it has odd implications for uh, ideas like agency theory. Uh, I do um, tell. I don't know what agency theory is, but I would love to uh, dive on in. So. 
Within a business context, um, we we don't trust the person that runs a business. Mm-hmm. They are merely an agent of the stakeholders of the business, or rather the shareholders of a business. They should be the agent of the stakeholders. They are often simply the agent of the shareholders. Uh, the the corporation. Right? Yeah, so the stakeholders being everyone who has a stake in the business success, yep. the shareholders being the ones who own the shares. Stakeholders would also include uh, workers and people involved in the company, people who mm. create or work with the company who have an interest in that company being successful. Yeah. Um, the idea is that the shareholders hold the power to fire the CEO and the CEO is not trusted to make best decisions. The CEO's job is to do what the shareholders tell him to do. The shareholders yep. tell him to get ROI, return on investment. Yep. So his main job is to funnel money to the shareholders. Yeah. So he'll do whatever it takes to make the company successful for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side of that is that in general, one of the reasons why we elect politicians in a representative democracy rather than having direct democracy is that... Um, the majority of the population cannot be educated on the majority of matters the majority of the time. Yeah. So I don't really know much about town planning other than that I think there should be more opportunities for play. Therefore, I should not be allowed to vote on a town planning bill in my area unless I go and study for it. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I elected a councilman whose job it is is to know about town planning on my behalf and to make the best decision. Yeah. And then I also elected an MP whose job it is is to be well informed about um, politics across the world. And so when he gets asked to vote on this or that issue, he makes up his mind because it's his job to know, not mine. And I trust him to do that job. Mm-hmm. What you often see and what you're seeing now with the internet and the, just the sheer volume of information is a breakdown in trust in those systems. Yeah. So we don't necessarily trust our politicians to act in our best interests, even those within our own parties. Yeah. And so we constantly survey them. And if they do something that we can be outraged about, we turn on them. But actually, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be considering, we should be trusting them. We have to trust them because otherwise the system doesn't work because there's no way for us like uh, Britain leaving the EU is a really really good example of this mm-hmm. um, there was a vote given to the population for leaving the European Union yeah. and the fact of the matter is the European Union and its relationship with the UK is incredibly complicated yeah. like mind numbingly so there are so many things interlinked there are laws there are borders it turned it, like the whole thing is a clusterfuck like it's so difficult to understand it looks like leaving the EU was a really really bad decision for the UK like on a turn mm. in terms of um, what we gain versus what we're losing yeah that being said there was no way for the general population to actually know because it wasn't our job to know. It was our, it's my job to be a really good teacher of parkour, mm-hmm. not to be, you know, well-read on yeah, yeah. thousands upon thousands of documents. Yeah, uh, Even MPs aren't meant to know everything. They trust the committees. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not meant to know everything. We're not designed to know everything. So we have to trust our elected officials to know more than us and to make decisions, and we have to trust those decisions. And that trust doesn't exist anymore. So when you see things like the great 
uh, so uh, the internet's a great democratizer. Um, I always kind of have to pause and say, well, yeah, but we have a representative democracy for a reason. There are really good things about the internet, but one of them is not that we're better informed because we're not. We're worse informed because anyone can put out anything and we can't trust the quality of what we're reading. Do you think that's a a symptom that we're dealing with because it's new, because it's fresh, or do you feel like it's something that the more freedom we get on the internet, the worse it could get? Or like, I think it's a truism in that the internet, when we remove trust from the system, we end up in this place. Uh, and the flip side is having far fewer voices that tell us narratives that aren't necessarily true but having trust in those voices and and listening to those voices mm-hmm. and nothing I've seen so far convinces me that the system we have now is better than the system we used to have mm-hmm. okay. because but it, it, it feels the- better it does feel better. And maybe, again, maybe the gut instinct is wrong here. But maybe, you know, it's something that's uh, sacrificed through like our, our discomfort, our, our bewilderment in this area where, era where we don't, we can't trust our politician, we can't trust anybody because there is so much contradictory information coming in that you really can't make heads or tails of any of it. Um, it illuminates the fact that there is just too much bullshit and maybe that's going to be what helps us get through siphoning out the bullshit and again realizing that maybe you know maybe it helps us realize that all these material goods are because one of the reasons we're we're not we're losing trust in these 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 epic figures is the stories the narratives weren't true right or at least they they were made out to sometimes be you know bill cosby for christ's sake yeah. A nation's a nation's hero, like a gem for a national treasure for for decades, was a serial rapist, and it's just like, oh fuck, like that, or you know, it just or yeah, uh, you know, all the all the. I, yeah, I mean, it, I think your your point is absolutely true. Uh, um, but I I think that there's a a level of. I I think it's. Not necessarily the same thing to say that uh, the the rise of feminism and feminism winning the culture war is necessarily the same as the taking over of the internet, although I think to a certain extent maybe it is. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting question and one that I don't have enough information to answer, I but you should don't. totally get someone who's bright and up on feminism on the show to ask them that question because it's a really interesting one. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that um, with somebody who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, because I certainly don't like have a, a an informed opinion on this, but, uh, but yeah, there's definitely upsides. Yeah, like, to say that there aren't upsides is is to miss the nuance that I'm trying to portray here, which mm-hmm. is that there are there are definitely upsides to bringing control back to people, which yeah. is that if we find someone who is bad, they are caught. Mm-hmm. But. Um, and not only that, but what I'm arguing is perhaps we understand better through through coming out the other side of this or even already, you know, I feel like I understand what it really means to be human. And and we understand maybe, you know, this, this air of nobility or this air of perfection or this idealistic 
future that you know we all like you know september 11th was another was another like at least in america and i'm throwing them back to all these american ones but i'm sure they exist they exist everywhere but the these these blows to just like oh you know they this idealistic attitude needs to be checked often enough i guess for us to to help solve the problems that still exist otherwise we get lazy like you're saying and and, and maybe it, we, we're missing out on a deeper more robust um, society that has like it's more in tune and more in tr- in uh, in keeping with what truly makes us happy, what truly meets our needs as as human beings. Some really interesting ethical questions coming out of that. Like, um, so if you have a if you have a system where we uncover the bad behavior of someone in power mm-hmm. uh, and therefore we change the way we behave such that people feel significantly more disconnected from one another and unable to communicate very well in fear of being caught acting or behaving in a different way, is that good or bad? That might be. I think that I think for me the answer is definitely that we need to make constant moral adjustments, and that what we're seeing right now is really positive. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that as a young man, I behaved in ways that ten years later definitely are totally unacceptable, mm-hmm. and that I can look back on that and go, "Aha, great! Culture has moved on, and we're in a better place." Yeah. Um, and that's really good. Yeah, but uh, some but the the sort of the the thread of that question becomes: What is the best way for us to, as a species, interact with one another that leads to the most happiness? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reactionary behavior of. Uh, Twitter trolls and doxing and public shaming is definitely not the answer because I I, I 100% agree and I think that like part of like what I meant by what I was talking about there is okay Bill Cosby it's a kind of an obvious you're a bad person we don't like you 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 can't hang out with our society no more you're not you're never going to be the same to us but because we went through the Bill Cosby's and we, again, the, the shaming, it gets out of hand. But until we know, until it got out of hand, we didn't know where the line was. And comes, now we can kind of like. back to that idea that we were talking about earlier, yeah, these, these cultural the shifts. Uh, so we went too far, we found too far, mm-hmm. and now we've got to come back and find mm-hmm. the actual line. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I don't know, uh, did the Aziz... What's this with and Aziz and sorry, yeah, yeah. That that's, that that story I think is really representative of I think what we're trying to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Where people kind of went, okay, that's also a bad story, but but that's not in the same category as those stories. Yeah. How do we feel about this story? Okay, this is actually a really complicated, nuanced issue where everything about it requires discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and okay, let's let's try and find the neutral point. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and that's all that yeah, I mean that's like it's it's cool that we're like all right, well hopefully now instead of 
the immense shame will will not you won't be held to like this impossible standard as a politician or as a celebrity or as Joe. You'll Schmo. be held to this standard. Be, this is what we think you have to hold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get closer to at least like knowing. All right, this is this is what's acceptable. If you want to be on the Supreme Court, you can't flash your genitals at women. <laughs> that sort of thing. That's a that's a pretty good rule. Okay, I'd yeah. I'd go by I'd go by that. I'd buy okay. that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Waiting into American politics. Yeah. <laughs> um, fascinating stuff, man. Uh see here. I um I wanted to touch real quick before we, we finish anything here on uh on the the topic of com- competition and stuff. If you're if you're fight, fight, if fight, you're, fight. If you're game. Because yeah, like you it. said, you um you are you know, you you reside in a pretty pretty outwardly just like not not competitive and i don't know if you're formally against competition in parkour but or if you're more just so i'll let I you am, explain it oh yeah yeah you i think you are yeah it, let me go for it so i'm formally against competition in parkour mm-hmm. i would say that parkour is a non-competitive sport mm-hmm. and that i don't recognize parkour as being competitive and one of the things that's a bit confusing for people about that sentence is that I'm not saying that you can't compete and call it parkour. I'm just saying that I'm not going to call it parkour when you compete mm. because uh, that's uh, a red line I have to have for what I do. Yeah. And I think it's the reason I've come to that conclusion is because we have an awful lot of very competitive physical environments in our culture. In fact, nearly every physical environment in our culture is competitive. There are some that aren't. They're very rare. And all of them have some element of competition to them. So you mentioned uh, skiing when we were having this discussion earlier. Yeah, Skiing doesn't need to be competitive, but there are competitive skiers and there's a huge competitive skiing scene. Exactly. Um, Climbing doesn't feel competitive, but competition is quite a big part of the climbing community. Yeah. Um, surfing surfing always struggles with competition they understand the concept of it but you <laughs> kind of feel like they've never quite done it right uh, yeah. which is to their benefit Yeah, but it is difficult to find phys- uh, physical environments that don't have a competitive element to them yeah. and what I'd like to dive into real quick before we go even any further because this is really what I'm most interested in I think is is why um, you know not so much like is parkour competition and whatnot. I think like I'd love to keep going with that but what 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 is it that you find that's important to keep the this non-competitive space for people, mm-hmm. and because, as we mentioned before, like competition seems to have its place even in in, in any you know classroom to at least help kids understand potentially, and I'd like to get your take on this too. Like, how does competition? When is it necessary? When is it? When when do we need to learn? Because it seems like it's a a skill or the be the ability to have emotions. For, the stresses of winning, as you called them, the stresses of losing. These are important tools to learn. Definitely. And the and the idea of not being competitive at all doesn't really make sense. Mm. But the idea of having a physical space that's not competitive makes sense. And what I'm kind of pushing back against is this assumption that a physical space has to be competitive. So um, we always... Uh, if I am in a classroom mm-hmm. and I'm teaching children and they try and turn it into competition, um, 
I need to be able to pull it back and say, well, no, this isn't a competitive environment. Let's talk about it. What is this sort of environment? Why are we doing this? And if the reason is to win, we see certain behaviors in children. Uh, we see uh, them cheat. Mm. We see them ignore the rules. We see them try and bend the rules. We see them get really angry uh, if 10 children are competing, only one can win, which means nine are upset. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see a lot of negativity surrounding it Mm -hmm. because the point of that space is to win. And if the point is to win, then cheating can't necessarily be wrong because they're trying to beat each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas... If you're in a non-competitive environment and you cheat, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, like it's 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 almost. What what are the goals in a non-competitive environment? Well, or is, it, is it a place so setting? So I think the the first part is, um, whatever the coach says it is. Okay. So challenge is a is parkour's main goal is to challenge oneself. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, uh, we train to be strong to become useful. And we challenge ourselves to try and complete challenges. And the way we try and become strong and useful is that we try and complete challenges. And and that builds an assumption of success. So what happens is uh, yeah, we say, okay, can I do this? And the assumption is, yes, I'll manage. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Mm. But if I set myself a challenge and I think I can do it, I assume that I'll get it. Yeah, And that's a really positive mindset for a human being to have and go out into the world. So when we're educating people and we're putting them in physical environments, we want to teach them lessons that will help them in their lives. Building an assumption of success and the ability to challenge yourself and complete challenges and to know you can do that is a huge part of what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that's something else that needs to be taught. And that's something that isn't taught very easily in competitive environments Mm. because in competitive environments someone has to win and someone has to lose whereas in a challenging environment everyone can win Mm -hmm. and in society sometimes we're in competitive environments and sometimes we're not Mm. and it's not that difficult for me and probably not you either to think of people who sometimes miss that and think of every environment as competitive and sometimes you don't need to win Mm. sometimes everyone can win yeah and is it not fair to argue that if people are exposed to more non-competitive environments they might not always assume that it's competitive yeah i mean yeah build for win-win is a huge part of conflict resolution Mm -hmm. And if you always think in in terms of a dichotomy of win-lose, you're trying to beat the other person. And sometimes that means making them lose, even if it's at the cost of your success. Mm. And then suddenly you're building for lose-lose, but you still win. Mm. So that's an example. And it's a reasonably extreme example. And I realize there's, there's holes in that argument. But one of the ways in which you sometimes don't want to have a competitive environment and you want the non-competitive environment to at least exist... Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to dominate culture. It just needs to exist. Mm. And so for me, parkour is one of those environments. And so as a result, we push heavily back against competition in that space. Mm. That's not to say that you can't compete and you should You should compete. Uh, if you're interested in comp- competing, there's loads and loads of ways to compete out there and they're all great. And if you love moving, there's loads and loads of ways to move and compete. And we're not saying you can't, like, 
go and do Ninja Warriors and World Chase Tags. But for me, the answer seems really clear, which is give us this space that we can teach these skills in this manner and leave it non-competitive. Sure. Um, because it isn't nuanced. It's simple. And simple is better when educating. I feel you. I feel you big time. Um, again, if I was going to take it back to skiing, my my uh, my my only question, I guess, would be like, why can't it be a non like because I think what what ultimately it comes down to what you would push back against is like, well, you're not calling it parkour if it's a competitive sport. But again, like what I and I maybe I'm being redundant. Hopefully not um, from our conversation earlier. But in the with skiing, it's it's not known as a competitive sport. When you think of skiing, it's not competitive in my mind. I don't know if it is in yours. So the fact that, you know, we have it, we, if we called it a parkour competition or if it has parkour in the title, it seems to be, at least in other domains, it seems uh, not to necessarily rob it of its identity as a non-competitive activity. However, so so I guess, yeah, that's my, my only proposition, I guess, is do I... you feel like it could ever exist where – we, we, do you feel like it's a it's it's too sensitive right now to relinquish that red line? I, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess the simple answer is I don't think I get a choice. Like I don't like my point is that I don't get to tell you that you can't host mm. Apex International. You know, of course, yeah. Like there's no way for me to stop you in the same sense that there's no way for you to stop me. Um, but would that bother you? I guess is what I'm asking. If 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 it became that way, if it became like skiing, where um, there was Olympic skiing, there was competitive skiing, there's X Games, there's like all these other things. And of course, still, when people say the word skiing, they don't think of necessarily any one of these things. They actually probably think of, hopefully, the the kind of genuine going up, having a good time, hitting the slopes, whatever, like in challenging yourself the same way you would in parkour. I think that if you go to... Uh, children's ski slope and you talk to the instructors and you talk with the children who are coming to those classes you will discover performance pathways mm. you'll discover the instructors being told to identify the children who show natural yeah. knack you'll get instructors having quiet words with parents about the potential yeah, for yeah, children yeah. to develop onto further pathways and then you discover in the world of snowboarding, uh, earlier this year, a promising 16-year-old girl landed on her neck and they talk about uh, competitive snowboarding as having an incredibly toxic atmosphere where they feel really pushed yeah, yeah. Uh, to hit and slam the biggest tricks when they're really young because mm -hmm. everyone knows the best snowboarders are under 18. Yeah, And so the fact that I can immediately recall the rebuttal isn't, means that maybe there's a good reason why I need to have that red line in place. Yeah. No, and I think that's a very valid point. And, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to think of almost any discipline where that might not seep in. I don't know if there is one. I guess but, I guess it's, I guess the answer is quite simply that I know that we can't entirely encapsulate mm -hmm. parkour from the competitive world. And definitely the fact that people compete doesn't bother me. It doesn't keep me awake at night. Mm -hmm. I think what bothers me is being told that I'm not allowed to hold this viewpoint. 
I get that a lot. Mm. Um, I hope that's not what you're getting from me. No, no, I'm not saying you're not Um, allowed to hold it. I actually really respect it. And I think what I said in the car earlier is it's important for people to express their viewpoint, especially, you know, someone who obviously believes it and has thought things through to keep those of us like me who are either on the fence or don't care or are very pro competition in check. Yeah. I did. Uh, I, I told you this earlier that my, my favorite rebuttal is to be told that uh, my viewpoint is not helpful for the competitive <laughs> parkour scene. Yes. That's the intention. That's, that's, that's the idea here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's a sense of entitlement. Like, why aren't you on my team? It's like, I don't know. That, that's, some, that's maybe some hyper competitive shit. Who knows? You know, they say Michael Jordan was like a huge asshole. Like he's notoriously an asshole because he's one of these people that he cannot live outside of the competition environment. To him, everything is a competition. Who can eat the most Skittles and while they're sitting waiting for the airport? Who's on and off the plane? Like he would wake up his entire team when he's awake. His whole team's awake. He would drive his. Uh, he's just notorious, you know. And he's like this ultimate winner, but he can't turn it off ever. Um, which, which again, like, uh, just to take it around to the other side, because again, I don't know if we fully flesh this out, but why then, um, uh, just to, to help to force you to steal man, the other, the opposite argument, why do you think competition is important or when is it important? So for children and for, you know, how does it go from, from being a good thing, a virtue to being this toxic environment that's going to cause a 16 year old girl to break her neck or something? It's a really interesting question. I think first of all, the the role of teachers so let's let's let me ask you again this is unfair i know that coaching isn't your thing but <laughs> well i mean i'm trying to be helpful i'm actually yeah. writing an article that's touching on some of the stuff we've talked about about what it, how to how i taught myself the best lessons that helped me advance for my own training yeah. which was kind of like you said i gave myself a tool to yeah. ratchet and then I was able to extrapolate it to everything else. But anyhow, look for that later. <laughs> so <laughs> if you had a choice and you had to do one of two things, mm-hmm. would you want your coaching program to identify the best kids in the class and start a more advanced class for them mm-hmm. and focus on a small group's development? Or would you want your program to focus on reaching every single child, even if it meant that those who were the most talented maybe lost out in time to those who were struggling the most? And this might come as a surprise to you, but I would want the latter. Personally, because, and again, these are weird philosophies I have. I think that I no doubt believe that if you sought out the best students and provided better and better training sports for them, they would take advantage from that. Mm-hmm. However, I think that ultimately the people that get to these high competition, these huge elite level statuses and whatever, it's mostly self-engined and that if the gym exists and there's other people to train with, they will find them. They will like, you won't even have to build it. They will come in certain scenarios, like once someone's gone somewhere, those people will gravitated to go there and go beyond it because that's the competition yeah. already. I think that so is, I that is a unfortunately a slightly privileged position mm-hmm. in that barring any barriers, that's true. Yeah, of course. That being said, um, it like barring any barriers, that's true. Um, 
I think there there has to be room for both of those things. Yeah. Um, and we the we need as teachers to make sure that when children engage in competition, they know that they're engaging with it. They know they have the option to not engage with it. Mm-hmm. When they're in those competitive environments, they know how to behave. They can deal emotionally with uh, it going their way and then winning. They can deal emotionally with it not going their way and losing. Mm-hmm. They can deal emotionally with the fact that sometimes it won't be fair. That's a huge issue that a lot of kids have. That's not fair. No, it's not. <laughs> no, I set this up so you'd fail because I want you to fail because I'm teaching you how to fail and I'm going to keep making you fail until you <laughs> stop crying. Um, all of those things are part of what we as teachers need to teach. Mm. And so competitive environments need to exist mm. in our classrooms. That being said, if we only use competitive environments to transfer information, we sometimes forget that the option exists. This is sort of like... It comes back to a really nice, it's a really pleasant, um, looking at education through libertarian theory is really interesting because mm-hmm. education is always intervention and libertarians generally avoid intervention unless mm-hmm. it's required. Mm-hmm. And so a libertarian would sit there and say, well, why aren't you letting them play? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, it's it's PE time, that's play time. Like, why aren't the kids being allowed to play for three, four, five hours a day? Yeah. It would mean that teaching was easier, the teaching time they'd be more focused, uh, and you could uh, then see which of the taught material the children were actually incorporating into their play, and you could then incorporate that into your classrooms. It would mean the teachers were less stressed, which means they get through more work, which means the quality of life would be improved, which means more people would want to be teachers, which means you'd get better teachers. Oh. Suddenly, like, this, yeah. Quadruple like, wins. Um, it's not that simple. But all all good political philosophies make their approach sound wonderful and idealistic. But the point is that play environments are a place where a lot of these things are worked out Mm -hmm. and children develop these skills and abilities. And just making sure that we as a society are able to create competitive environments for those children and non-competitive environments for those children and structured environments for those children and non-structured environments for those children and just being able to give them all of them actually might make our lives easier and also gives children more versatility and ability to engage with more environments, helps them become experts, helps them develop their critical thinking skills because they see more than one kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You can imagine, like, it's sort of taken, most teachers know, if a child does six sports, they are healthy. Mm. If a child does one sport six times a week, they're probably going to break unless they're doing an awful lot of prehab and rehab work. Yeah. Or maybe if the sport's diving, free oh, no. water diving. Oh, not no, like that's, that, that'll break you fast. Just swimming? No, I mean you. like deep water soloing? I don't know. I'm trying to think of a sport that's like generally easy on the body, you know? <laughs> Underwater? Come on. Swimming is a really fascinating one. So swimming is quite gentle on the body, yep. which means they practice for hours and hours a day. Uh, and then they just destroy Because they of... push the body to its limit. Yeah. I think, uh, I know I love your take on that. And I think it's like, that's one of the things I love most about traveling is like it can offer you, it can just force you into these different mind states and like different expand takes. And, yeah. Expand, you know, because it, 
in America, 100%, there is a more dominating competitive culture Definitely. than in other parts of the world, and except it, for maybe Japan. And look what it's doing to Japan. Japan's, you know? Japan's culture is so different, though. It's so different, but it, one of the things, and I guess it's not so much competitive. It's like this work ethic. Yeah, this, it's, like, it's a different, be but, a good you know, ours is like work hard because it'll make your dreams come true. And also if your dreams didn't come true, you fucked up. Yeah. And like, you know, like, <laughs> and, and Japan's more like work hard just because you're Japanese and uh, don't you, fuck your dreams. Don't worry about that. Just work. Work until you're dead. Or at least I'm t- I haven't been to Japan. I actually heard amazing things. And I can't wait to go one day. But I just know that that's part it's of the stereotype of the culture. It's definitely part of the culture. And, uh, you know, people are literally it's working themselves to death over there. Here too. Here too as well, yeah. And um, and like you said, if you if you don't know how to disengage with that environment, it can be it can it can destroy your it can lead you down the road of depression because, again, if you're if you're buying into the competition and you're not winning. And your whole identity is tied up in that boom. Well, now you feel you are a loser in your own head, in your own mind. Yeah, even you did that you, to yourself. Yeah. So don't do that, guys. Remember, <laughs> you can disengage and just, you know, play. Go, go somewhere else. Play. And build an assumption of success within what you're doing and enjoy parkour for play, which is what it is. And if you don't know how to play, you can learn to play. Um, and there are so many ways to play. Uh, play can be physical like parkour play can also be told in stories mm. uh, play can be collecting like it's a valid form of play to try and visit every parkour gym in America that's a valid kind of play called yeah. collecting play yeah uh, uh, social play is a thing like there are so many different kinds of play out there and all of them make you happier in some way mm. some people are drawn to one more than others but mm-hmm. they're all really like, um, as I'm sure you're aware, creating content, videos, blogs, it's a form of play. Yeah. Like we 100%. do. 100%. Yeah. I mean, we, we want to monetize it, but we Why it's do still you think play. I'm such a jackass on this program all the time? <laughs> I want to make sure it maintains its playful environment status, you know? Not that anyone would get the wrong idea and think that I had know what I'm talking about on this program, <laughs> but just in case they forget, I remind them thoroughly. Yeah. Whoa. And there you go. Again, a nice sign of of the lack of production that goes into this playful, <laughs> playful podcast. Literally, what the fuck was that? It was in my kitchen. Um, I think that was upstairs. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I, I think that's, that's a, a solid note to, a, yeah, to end on. Yeah, like appreciate you coming on, man. No yeah, worries. Really, I, I'd love to have you back on. Maybe we'll even do another one while we're out at the at the retreat. Who knows? Let's get some more people. Let's get, get some, some people pe- who disagree with me. Yeah, let's get a. Let's get a. Yeah, I need to get. I got another mic. Maybe I'll get another one tomorrow before I head out so we can get a, who knows? We'll see. Get a three in. Three in, yeah. <laughs> I have a, yeah, man, it was it was a pleasure talking with you. I, um, open invite. And then I, I'd love to take this this podcast on tour one day. You know, my first goal is to take it to Art of Retreat. This is the first time we're taking it mobile in a minute. And then we're going to take it, hopefully, to the UK and go you up should, and down. You should do a, a podcast during which... Craig does a podcast. Craig? And you both podcast each other. Who's Craig? Craig Constantine. I'm lost. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania does uh, Movers Mindset podcast. Uh, he was at Last Art Retreat. Um, I'm you know Craig? Drawing, I'm, I'm sure uh, putting names to faces is not the easiest of those events, but 
or faces to names rather. But yeah, I'm sure I do know him. And like, sorry, Craig, if you're listening, and uh, <laughs> and I forgot. He's crying. He's literally. I'm, I'm he's sure he doesn't give a. F- I'm sure he doesn't know what the fuck high drop is. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, maybe we'll do a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Yes. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't be mad at that. And I would release. That, I mean, that, that that would take some. No, it wouldn't take. It would not take much work. Wouldn't take much work. We got I the video. A one shot recently that would totally work. All right. Amazing. All right. So look forward to that. Hopefully we get that done. Hedge, John Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming on. 